Hello and welcome to the new Psychology of Depression, a series of programmes with me, Dr Danny Penman, and Professor Mark Williams of Oxford University. In the previous programme we discussed mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, a new approach to preventing depression. In this programme we're going to ask, is mindfulness-based cognitive therapy effective? Mark, can you describe some of the key landmark pieces of evidence that say that MBCT is very effective? The first study that we did was to offer this eight-week programme to people who'd been depressed recurrently. That is, they'd been depressed at least twice. Uh, but we knew that you have to divide the sample into people who've been depressed maybe for a minimum of twice or three or more times because they turn out to have different risks and different profiles. So we randomly allocated people, that's almost like a coin toss, but a computer does it or somebody does it outside the research team, in what's called a randomised controlled trial. Now that takes the uh, idea of randomness so that you can make sure that the people in both groups, and we were contrasting MBCT, but with treatment as usual. So some people were allowed, in fact all the people were allowed to go back to their doctor, have more um, antidepressants if they wanted to. All the people had had antidepressants in the past when they started the trial, but all of them were now off antidepressants and they'd been free from depression for at least two months. That means they were uh, definitely in remission and not suffering from depression when they started. Remember that we wanted to test out whether this would prevent new episodes of depression, not whether it actually treated depression, because we already had treatments for that. So here's two groups. They're randomly allocated to receive actually mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, as well as their treatment as usual, or treatment as usual alone. Then the people who've been allocated to have mindfulness have the eight-week program. Then we followed them up every two months for 12 months, which is the critical time. If they're going to relapse, they're going to relapse probably in that time. And indeed, you find that if they were going to relapse, that's exactly what happened. People who had three or more episodes before they came to us relapsed at the rate of 66% over that 12 months. If they'd had the mindfulness, however, that went down to 37%. So almost halving the rates of, of relapse. Now, people that only had two episodes are somewhat different. Their relapse rates were fairly low anyway, and actually it was a small subsample. Only 25% of our 145 in that trial actually had only two episodes, and mindfulness didn't seem to as it would make that any better. Um, so that was the pattern, that people with three or more episodes, that is the people that we were very interested in, 75% of the sample who had been recurrently depressed, actually had a halving, almost a halving of the rate of relapse. Now, of course, the problem is, would that be a flash in the pan? It might be that that's just the one study. And so John Teasdale um, decided in his replication study to do precisely the same, but now just with a new sample of people just at Cambridge. He and Helen Marr did what's called a procedural replication. That's where you do almost exactly the same thing, same entry criteria for the trial, with people with two or more episodes of depression. He found precisely the same pattern of results, that people with only have two episodes of depression, they were the minority, didn't seem to have any effect on them, but people with three episodes, that is the most needy, chronic, recurrent cases, actually it more than halved. In fact, in those cases, if they didn't have mindfulness, 78% of them relapsed, and that came down to something like 35, 36%, so more than halving the rate of relapse uh, in uh, that trial. Why is it most effective with people who are most afflicted by depression? 
This is the curious thing because most treatments in, in the world of psychological treatments actually have the biggest uh, challenge with people that have been ill the longest. And here's an approach which seems to have the reverse of that. People that have the most challenging problem that have been around for longer uh, get most benefit. I think it's because when you've been depressed three or more times, and indeed Martin Teasdale confirmed this, your depression has started early, often in teenage years, you've had difficult problems with your parents, by the time we come to see them the mean number of episodes is four and you've, you've had a 20 year history of depression and so you've got stuck in these mental grooves and therefore the sort of depression we're seeing there are just the sort of depression which mindfulness is very good for, helping people to stand back from these mental grooves and get that sense of being liberated from the patterns of the mind that have become so habitual. With people who have only two episodes, those patterns haven't become so habitual yet. They get a lot from the meditation, they actually find it very relaxing, but often when another life event strikes, and, and with these people with only two episodes, if they do get depressed, it's usually because something really toxic has happened again in the time that we're following them up. And mindfulness doesn't prevent the depression that follows immediately on the heels of a big life event. Maybe they've learned mindfulness too recently and they struggle to try to use it as a way to fix their problems. Maybe they would be better to take a holiday from mindfulness during the real storm of their life event. For whatever reason, um, and more research is needed here, it doesn't uh, affect the depression that follows hard on the heels of a major accident or upset or bereavement and so on. Not probably unless you've learned med meditation a long time before and it's part of your practice. It's often very difficult to get hard, solid evidence that a psychological approach to um, depression is actually effective. In that case, how do we know that MBCT is actually effective? You've got to do trials. You've got to do randomised controlled trials. That's the recent discovery over 20 or 30 years. You can't just do it on a few people, show that it works, and then write it up. That's what people used to do, and it's often the very first step, of course, in seeing whether a new psychological approach works. You've got to find a clinical series of patients, discover that it works, not just with the first patient, but with the second, with the third, with the fourth. But then, sooner or later, you have to do the hard work of randomly allocating some people to receive the treatment you think is going to be great, and compare it with people that don't have that treatment, but who are, in other respects, identical. And that's what the RCT, the randomized controlled trial, gives you. For all its faults, it does give you that confidence that basically you're not just, as it were, you've got a good idea, but you're fooling yourself. I mean, what's very interesting about this work is, is obviously you and your co-workers developed MBCT, but it seems to have been picked up by many groups around the world. Some uh, very, very interesting major trials have been done in other countries as well, which is always very heartening. If you had to choose two or three trials that really backed up your claims, which ones would they be? You raise an important point that it's not enough just for the developers of a treatment to do the trials. It's got to be somebody outside uh, who weren't the developers to see if it actually works in other countries and other settings. So in addition to those first two trials, and after those two trials, the UK's National Institute of Clinical Excellence picked it up and put it there as a, uh, a recommended treatment for people who have three or more episodes of depression. That was in 2004 and again in 2009. Even with that evidence, they picked it up and, and established it as a, as a treatment of choice for recurrent depression. But you still need the data from outside. So 
There was a third trial, also in the United Kingdom, but now not done by the developers, uh, by a colleague, Willem Kuyken, in Exeter, and they contrasted MBCT with antidepressant medication and found that it was just as good, in fact, in some measures, better than people continuing to take their medication. That was then backed up by a trial in Switzerland that found that you could delay the onset of depression by uh, 20 weeks or so with mindfulness-based cognotherapy, and another trial in Belgium, and the Belgium trial based at the University of Ghent found that the relapse rate went down from 68% to 30%, so again, halving the rate of relapse. That was an interesting trial because it showed that people could do it whether they were on antidepressants or not. In the early trials, we had asked people to to only come to the trial if they were not taking antidepressant medication. And we found that we could prevent it in that group. But of course, many people continue taking their antidepressant medication. The Belgium trial found that even if you allowed people to take their antidepressant medication right throughout, and randomly allocated people to MBCT or the treatment as usual, you've got this large change from 68% to 30% in the relapse rate. And the sixth trial that was published in 2010 by Zindel Siegel uh, in Toronto, so one of the original developers with us of the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, was even more interesting because they contrasted mindfulness with people taking their antidepressants, carrying on taking their antidepressants, or coming off and taking a pill placebo instead of antidepressants. And what was striking there was people who had the most difficult form of depression, that's what's called sort of unstable remission. So people, they feel better, but then they become depressed again. And then they have another period where they feel better, then they get depressed again. So it's a very unstable pattern of remission and recovery. And for those people, they were helped equally by antidepressants or by mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. But if they got the placebo pill, they relapsed at about 70%. But both antidepressants and mindfulness took it down to just below 30%. So once again, the pattern is emerging of mindfulness being better than treatment as usual and being at least as good as antidepressant medication. Is there any way of enhancing the effectiveness of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy? There always will be. In other words, we always need you know, more research. Getting the relapse rates down to 30% is effectively taking out of the picture the effect of everything more than the first two episodes. So basically getting people back to where they were, you know, where they'd only had two episodes, where their risk was about 30%. But we'd like to do more. And one way is to develop more methods for inviting people to really notice their rumination, their avoidance patterns. Another way might be to do more behavioural work, actually inviting people to go out and try things, which is one of the hallmarks of cognitive therapy and behavioural activation. And if you summarise all the trials, you see that on balance, if you take all the six trials together, which has totaled about 590 patients altogether, there's a group at the University of Aarhus uh, led by Jacob Peart, and he's done a meta-analysis of this. Overall, the reduction in relapse risk is about 44% for people with three or more episodes of depression. But there are questions like, is it good for people that don't respond to other treatments? They're, that's officially known as treatment-resistant depression. Um, is it good for chronic depression? Is it, does, how long do the effects last? Um, um, is it as good as CBT? Well, each of those have now begun to have trials done throughout the world. And we know some of the preliminary answers to that.
So Stuart Eisendrath in California has used MBCT for people who don't respond to medication, at least two trials of medication. Um, for the third trial of medication, he'd have expected about a 14% uh, recovery rate. With MBCT, he more than doubled that. Um, same pattern with Maura Kenny in her work in Adelaide in Australia. Um, she found that nearly 50% responded to MBCT despite the fact that they hadn't responded to cognitive therapy and they hadn't responded to antidepressants. And that's a remarkable result for people who've been depressed for years and years and years. Um, my colleague here, Torsten Bonhoeffer, has looked at chronic depression. Um, in a group that were chronically depressed, weren't responding to treatment and had suicidal depression and found that uh, in a little randomised control trial that you could reduce the Beck depression inventory score by one standard deviation using MBCT, which was very, very new for these people to feel that sort of sense of relief and release from their depression for the first time. Maura Kenny's now followed up her patients from that Adelaide study for three years and find that those effects are maintained for up to three years. And another Australian group uh, in Gordon Parker's group in Sydney has found that its group cognitive therapy and classes of MBCT have about the same effect. So research is progressing all over the world as we speak and it's showing the power of doing something that is not, in a sense, psychotherapy. It's not therapy in one sense. It's actually skills training in mindfulness meditation. These trials um, and relapse rates, are they just for people who've done the eight-week course and then stopped MBCT, or is it for people who've carried on doing MBCT after the eight weeks? Everybody who does the eight-week course are invited to carry on if they want to, but there's no compulsion to do so. They all get the CDs to keep. They can use it. And most people do do some, but not everybody. And what they do is generally less than they did on the eight-week course. But because they've got the CDs available to them, they might do a daily three-minute breathing space, two, three times a day maybe. They use it whenever they need it. And then maybe if they feel depression coming on, they've got the CDs there, they can actually put on a CD. One of them is a mindful movement CD, for example, which got something based on yoga. And many people find that very helpful, the way of actually putting their body through some movement as a way of actually dealing with the, uh, with the mind's tendency to go spinning around. Um, so yeah, many people do, but some don't. And it's too early to say whether this is a critical thing. What we know is that virtually any skill that you learn if you do a little bit each day, it means that you maintain the skill, whether it's learning a language, you know, juggling, whatever, playing the piano. If you do a bit each day, it's going to be better for you. It's going to be more accessible for you. And therefore, there's a very strong prima facie case for if people do a little bit of this each day, it's going to be more available for them. But that's further research needs to find out exactly how much each day. And, you know, is it about the same time as you'd spend in brushing your teeth each day, for example? Is it two or three minutes? Or does it take 10 minutes a day? We don't yet know yet. That's for further research to determine. So, I know there's no hard evidence, but what's your hunch? Do you think the people who tend to relapse are the ones who've tended to do either less meditation or have completely stopped meditating after the eight weeks? There is some evidence from the long-term Australian study in Adelaide. That is that people were weller, as it were, two or three years later, if they'd come to reunion meetings and they'd actually spent longer meditating on a daily basis. Now, that of course does suggest that you need to do the meditation and maintain it, practice, practice, practice. Every minute counts. However, 
in, if you want to be really critical of that sort of research, you would have to say that we don't know which causal way round it is. It might be that people who are um, actually enjoying meditating are those who actually aren't going to relapse much anyway, and they meditate more. So maybe there are certain people who take to the eight weeks, they really enjoy it, and they carry on meditating because they enjoy it, and their enjoyment of it is a marker of the fact that it suits them. And they're the people that turn up for reunions, and they're the people who meditate a lot. And it might be that people who don't enjoy it don't meditate, and that's a marker of the fact that meditation isn't going to work for them. They need another approach. We're not claiming this is a cure-all, and that there are lots of approaches out there, and people need to be able to have all these things available to them. Ultimately, we'll need to do the research to find out whether people that are, as it were, uh, encouraged not to meditate versus people that are encouraged to carry on meditating, whether that's got different long-term outcomes. It's a hard question, of course, because it's difficult to keep track of what people are doing and we don't want to impose on people's lives, but ultimately that's the assumption. And in science, the best thing is to try to falsify your favourite hypotheses. So it means that you've really got to look critically at all the things that might be wrong with just assuming that, okay, you've got to meditate, and if you don't meditate, you've had it. I think that may be true of some people, and for other people, they make so much transformation during the eight weeks, and maybe they can survive without meditating anymore. What I say to the patients when they finish the classes is, you know, we just don't know. We just don't know. And therefore, it's best, it's up to you, it's up to you to discover how this practice can nourish your life from day to day. And of course, most of us brush our teeth. Why do we do that? We're not going to get a filling, you know, a cavity immediately if we don't brush our teeth. Why do we do it? Because we've got that habit of uh, dental hygiene. And why not see this as being something like hygiene for the mind, where you just take a few minutes of silence to cultivate the art of stillness every day. It's been at the heart of many cultures for centuries, and I don't think that's an accident. So is there any evidence that mindfulness can serve as almost like a vaccine in ordinary people who've never suffered depression? I think it's a very interesting concept, the immunisation concept, because as you and I know from the Frantic World book, the emphasis there is not so much on clinical depression, but on the precursors of depression. That is the burnout, exhaustion, high stress, uh, you know, high levels of cortisol. The work that John Kabat-Zinn and his colleague has done, lots of work on stress in America, showing how mindfulness can reduce stress. We know that that affects all sorts of things that would normally cause physical damage to the body as well as the untold damage to the mind. And it's extremely likely that the idea of the vaccine or the cognitive vaccine is, I think, a very good one. So it not only works for depression, it also works for anxiety, stress, mental exhaustion. Is there anything else that it, it might be effective for? Well, when we're talking about when you get outside the clinical conditions of anxiety and depression, I mean, we've just finished a trial on health anxiety, for example, where it seems to be very useful. Um, we've done some initial work with eating disorders to try to work out how very severe anorexia might be helped with this approach. Work in America on eating disorders also going ahead. But also when you think about it as a, a vaccine, that releases all sorts of things. Because one of the things about a vaccine is you give it to everybody. It's a universal intervention. You, you offer it to everybody. I mean, measles, a vaccine is offered to everybody in the United Kingdom. Now, why is that important? Well, 
we've recently started to do some work with Nancy Bardicky, who is a nurse midwife from California who's developed mindfulness-based childbirth and parenting. She invites couples to come when they're expecting a new baby to come to a nine-week mindfulness course. And what they do is they deal with the issue of, first of all, the childbirth, which for many people is a very exciting but also fear-provoking. There's a lot of fear of the pain of childbirth, for example. And she modifies, just like we modified MBSR for depression, she modifies MBSR for childbirth and parenting, talking about fear and pain. And her mindfulbirthing.org website is a wonderful opening up of the possibility, not of what you might call natural childbirth, but what you might call don't know childbirth because you just don't know how, what's going to happen. So that you can take all these steps to make a birth plan, but how are you going to cope if something is different from what you expect? And Nancy Bardic's work is great for that, and she's been training people in the UK, based at the Oxford Mindfulness Centre, so we can develop here a new European initiative on how to train midwives to offer a mindfulness-based childbirth and parenting either as a universal intervention or at least to those mums and dads that we know are vulnerable around the time of the birth of a new child. Is there evidence that uh, mindfulness can work for heart disease and cancer and any other increasingly common diseases in the Western world? There's now evidence that mindfulness is very good at increasing the quality of life for people with cancer. Um, so uh, both work in America and Canada using MBSR and work in using MBCT in North Wales. And now there's been a, a trial in 2010 by uh, Foley and colleagues in, uh, in Australia in which they've looked at randomising people to mindfulness or to treatment as usual and finding it, it helps reduce the stress, reduce the rumination. Because when you've got a real tragedy in your life, then what you don't need is all the other stuff uh, you know, to get depression and stress and so on that you don't need. You need all your resources to deal with the day-to-day -day of the illness without it dragging up everything and feeling a failure and feeling um, extra suffering that often can come with these, uh, with these very challenging health conditions. Do you think there's any downsides to mindfulness? I think if people try to use it as a way of, a clever way of fixing things, then it may be a problem. Um, in that often when people meditate they feel very relaxed and that's lovely, it's a lovely byproduct of meditation but if you begin to think, ah, now that's what I need for my relaxation so that every time you feel tense, right, mindfulness, meditation, goal you can just get back into the trap of just a sort of discrepancy based processing and there is a danger that if you start to meditate with a goal in mind then it's fine, but if, it, if you don't meet the goal, if, you don't, if you're not relaxed within a minute, then you can get frustrated with yourself for not being relaxed. So what we have to remember is that mindfulness is about cultivating the sort of stillness that arises from allowing things to be as they are, rather than wanting things to be different in every respect. You've obviously worked in this whole area for 30, 35 years now. Which directions is the research going? And you know, What do you find most exciting at the moment? I think there's a number of different ways in which mindfulness and neuroscience, our study of brain imaging, is bringing this all together. We can actually see what happens in the brain. I think in the, uh, in the next episode, we need to look in, in greater detail at what happens to the brain when you meditate. And this will help us to see what the future holds for this research. Thanks very much. 
In this episode, we were looking at the effectiveness of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And in the next episode, we'll be looking at mindfulness and the brain and the future applications of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. For further information about mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, you can read Mark Williams and his co-worker's book, The Mindful Way Through Depression, or you could read our book, Mindfulness, Finding Peace in a Frantic World, that's by Mark Williams and me, Danny Penman, or you could visit the website, franticworld.com. If you'd like to support further research in this area, you could visit Oxford University's website devoted to this area, and that is oxfordmindfulness.org, and then follow the links to the development campaign.